Our guest today is a Grammy-winning producer, a Golden Globe-nominated songwriter, and a veteran composer-arranger for films. As a producer, he's worked with everyone from Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston to Celine Dion and Pink Floyd. He has written large-scale concert pieces, worked on films from Titanic to Moulin Rouge, and he's with us today to talk about his massive new score for Avatar, The Way of Water. Welcome, Simon Franklin. It's great to be here, John. Simon, although you've done an awful lot of music uh, over the past, I guess, 30 years or so, let's take a moment and talk about what got you here today. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you wound up in the music business. Oh, it was easy for me. I'm unemployable doing anything else. So at 13, I wrote a letter to the BBC and I wrote and I said to them, how do I become a record producer? <laughs> and they said, oh, you need this and this and this. And so I did this and this and this. Realized that that was completely the wrong thing to do <laughs> and left and went straight into recording studios in London. My thing was that I could use music computers of the time. The Synclavier was my particular instrument. I found this liminal space between the people who could use computers but weren't particularly musical and the people who were the hyper musicians but didn't know to how to use computers. And I found there seemed to be this niche that I fitted in. And so I was doing records in England, started producing, and at some point there was an engineer called Humberto Gatica who saw me working in London. And he persuaded me, he said, you've got to come to LA, nobody programs like you. So I looked at the music scene in England at the time and took a risk. I bundled all my gear, including my Synclavier, and ended up in LA, becoming a session musician in Los Angeles. I started working initially with David Foster, the record producer, and David is a supreme musician, phenomenal player, incredible arranger. There was a period in the 90s where we were doing everything. The Whitney Houston Bodyguard, or it was Unbreak My Heart with Tony Braxton, or it was all the Celine records. And I started programming, and then I started co-producing with him, and then we were producing together. And at some point in this, we did a soundtrack for Dancing with Wolves. Oh, sure, the John Barry score. And I met John, and we became great friends. And so I started working with him. John was a great mentor for me. And then I was at this point now sort of straddling. I had to have two worlds. One was all these sort of big epic pop tracks. And then the film stuff, so, you know, sort of slightly more complicated, more interesting things. So I was working with Howard Shaw on Seven, where I had to sort of like create the dystopian edge to his score. Alan Silvestri, I did many years of work with Alan. And at some point, Alan and James Horner had the same agent. And the agent phoned me up and said, would you go and talk to James Horner? The project was Titanic. And the problem was that there was no money. <laughs> there was absolutely no money. Which of course sounds hilarious today given the success of that film. The budget was microscopic, but they knew that I was the guy in Hollywood who could create a virtual orchestra or create something that had an orchestral scale inside the box. And then I met James and James said, see what you can do with this. So I built a version of the syncing in the Synclavier. I also programmed some extra bits and pieces on it, gave it back to him and, and he went, oh yeah, this is gonna be good. That sounds funny now. Yeah. Yes, it does. But at the time, there, there was also, this was the film that was going to bring down Paramount and Fox. Right, exactly. And so it was the... It was thought of Jim Cameron's folly at the time. The biggest disaster of all time. 
And it turns out to be very much the opposite. Yes, and I, you know, there was a point in the middle of the film where James Horner gave me a piano sketch. It was My Heart Will Go On. So I then said, okay, I can make this work for Celine. And I programmed up a demo. We persuaded Celine to sing the demo, which is pretty well what you hear in the film. And it winds up winning record of the year at the Grammys. Yes. I think, you know, there was this point where it was the most played song of both weddings and funerals. <laughs> Okay, so that was clearly your introduction to James Horner. Yeah. And I gather the relationship continued through several more films. I'd like to jump to your work on Avatar together. I actually moved back to England. I had to go back to England for, for some family reasons. And the next time I was in L.A. and Ian phoned me up and said, we know you don't do this anymore, but would you come and have a look at five minutes of something? Now, last time he'd said that to me, we'd had Titanic. So, <laughs> um, so I go over to the house and they show me five minutes of Avatar. And they said, would you be interested in working with us on this? And I look at it and go, this is pretty amazing. Can you describe what you had to do? Eventually, that we came up with a, a role which was called Electronic Music Arranger. But that was a sort of catch-all because my thing was the non-orchestral elements of the score, the glowing forest, the rhythms, the tactile quality of Pandora, shall we say. When I came in, the score had a lot of the apocalypto vibe about it. But I looked at it and there was, I think the first cue I worked on was when the, the night happens and suddenly the forest starts to glow. Yeah. And I looked at this and I went, it feels like a gamelan to me. You know, those, those beautiful rubs that happen, uh, the bell, the way that the that sort of glistening sense was something that I wanted. And I, my day job was, you know, the, the use of samples and synthesizers and so on. I sort of always felt like I try and create some sonic unique identities. And I looked at that scene in particular and thought, right, started building these textures and getting these glowing things. And I think everybody went, oh, this is, this is quite good. This is working really well. In the same first week, I think, there was Jake's first flight, which is this fabulous cue that James had written where he first goes on the crown and does the, the flies and so on. And it needed something extra. And I, I, for me, the thing that I did was the, it was the rhythmic approach. So that my role on that cue, for instance, was the... Sure. Which, in fact, was me doing this on my chest. <laughs> <laughs> and things like the wood sprites, when the wood sprites come and land on Jake. Those textures were things that I created. I, and I tried it with individually putting notes to go with each wood sprite. It ended up being a horrible mess. Um, but <laughs> it's, it was, it's a lovely was, idea. It's a lovely idea. <laughs> and I was able to do something not dissimilar to that when we did the theme park. So the, when you say theme park, this was a couple of years later, oh, right? Oh, no, I finished the theme park in the middle of 2017. Yeah, this so is this the is Pandora a, theme park in Florida. Pandora, the world of Avatar. Right, you know, the magical sounds of the forest on Pandora, which I think you're largely responsible for, is one of my fondest memories of that score. 
I think I take some pride in the sound of the film. I mean, obviously, it's, it's James wrote a beautiful score. Uh, I was there to bring some elements of it into a new space so that it wasn't just a standard orchestral score. And then we started working more closely together and I sort of started evolving my role. And so basically James and I, we had this sort of thing where I became inverted commas score producer. And that tended to mean that I would make sure that the scores get delivered. James and I were working together and, and we became very close friends. Then in the summer of 2015, June 22nd, I think it was, I get, I'm talking to him the night before and he has all of these films we're going to do. He'd already said yes to the Avatar sequels. So these were all lined up, ready oh, yes. to go. Yeah. yeah. And the next morning at six in the morning, I get a call from Jim Henriksen saying, James is dead. And it was a plane crash. It was a plane crash. Yeah. He was an incredibly enthusiastic pilot. And he had a solo aerobatics license. And we're not sure what happened. I flew straight back to LA to try and, and you know, find out what was going on. And we're, you know, we're in shock. Probably a month or so later, Disney Imagineering, we were working with on the park. We'd started work on that, but there was five hours of music to deliver for the park. Wow. So John Landau, the producer for Lightstorm, said, we'd like you to continue. We'd like you to take over delivering the music for the park. And there were two attractions. There was the flying ride, the flight of passage, and the Navi River journey, which is a, like a canoe ride. And both of them had extremely complex musical setups. And one thing about Disney Imagineering is that once a ride is working, it's basically locked in place for 20 years. <laughs> yes. So it has to be great. And the park was a big undertaking. And there was not just the ride music, but there's it sounds stupid, but there is music for when you queue. They wanted an immersive experience, so when people walked into this 12-acre park, that they immediately entered Pandora. Yeah. And it has been an astonishing success. The queues are still three or four hours long for the flying ride, and it is an amazing, amazing thing to be part of. In December 2017, Jim phones up, Jim Cameron, and says, come and talk to me. I want you to read the scripts. And this was plural. Oh, not just Avatar 2. No, he wanted me to read 2, 3, 4, and 5. <laughs> oh, man. So I go into a locked room and I read the scripts. Probably took all day. <laughs> it was one by one. I, would, I, I can't say I did all of them in one day. And... He said, we need to talk about some things here because on the first page of Avatar 2, as it was called, it wasn't called The Way of Water at that point, the first paragraph says, Neytiri sings the song chord. And he explained to me this idea of you being able to sing the history of your family and these beads that would be on, effectively, almost like a rosary but that you would, you would sing the life of ancestors. You could take the song chord for your great-grandmother and then sing her life. Or you could take somebody from 20 generations ago. So it was clear from the beginning that music was going to be an integral part of Avatar 2. 
Oh, yes. And Jim said to me, you know, it needs to feel like it's grounded in Pandora. It needs to have a feeling of being ancient, but yet it has, in this case, a mother's love for her child who's just been born. So at this point, were you set then to score Avatar 2? Had Jim talked to you about what was going to happen? No, we were at this point, we were just dealing with what was on the page. Okay. And the first thing I do is go home and I sit down at the piano and start working on the song chord. And it took me a little while just to get that shape because it's not a completely sort of normal melody. Did you have lyrics to work with? And I had to write the lyrics and, and I needed to do it in Navi, which is the language of Pandora, which is up there with Klingon and Vogon as being the probably most one difficult. Of the, <laughs> one of the worst languages to sing in, unless you're Zoe Saldana, at which point everything sounds exquisite. But I looked around through cultures around the world, and I found that this repeating idea of life being a spark, and then that spark becomes the dawn, and then you carry through your light through the day, you carry that light with you, and then gradually you walk towards the sunset at the end of your life. And that became the sort of home for the lyric. And then I started writing specific lyrics for specific characters, because he actually said to me, we need to have song chords for all of the children. So we had one for Nateem, which you hear on screen. We had one for Kiri as well, which you hear on screen. And one of the challenges was also finding words in Navi that were singable because we're in a language with lots of Ks and Xs and Ts, there's a Navi dictionary on, online. I'd sit there finding words that I thought were vaguely singable until we got this point, which still had the, the essence of what I wanted. And I then took these lyrics to Paul Frommer, who was the chief linguist, the man who created the Navi language. And then I worked with Zoe to get her to you know, learn the song, learn the lyric. And the, the vocal you see on camera is the vocal at being taken. We actually recorded that live with a hundred technicians and a boom mic. I did not go into a studio and pre-record it. That's her live vocal. On the set? On set. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, it is impressive. I think it's an amazing vocal. The qualities of her singing and the and the emotion that she gets through is fabulous. When I did the, the song version of this, I actually just took her vocal left it freehand. If you look at the tempo map for my track, it's like all over the shop because I thought that her natural rhythm was so good. I just then arranged the song around the vocal, playing pretty well freehand to her voice. And that's what we hear on the soundtrack. That's what you hear on the soundtrack. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Simon Franklin's score for Avatar The Way of Water. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you like. So at what point did Jim say, you know, you need to do the full score? We started having conversations over the following years. It would be like, well, I'm not ready to talk about the score yet, but if you were doing the score, what would you do? 
And I'm sure they were talking to other people as well. And then there was a point where John Landau said, now we're starting to think more seriously about this. And I said, yeah, I'd like to do it. Was this before shooting or had shooting started? Shooting had started, this is mid-2018, late-2018, because the idea at that point was the film was going to come out at the end of 2019. Uh Aha. And much like everything else in Avatar, there was a delay. Then it became the end of 2020. I then did a test set of recordings with an orchestra. I've written some themes, which I wrote off the script. So the song chord had now become an orchestral piece. That was the first thing. And that became my main family theme. And you hear it through the score, repeatedly used as for the family, either as a leitmotif or as a full piece. When they leave Home Tree, that is that song chord theme and Jim wanted that sense of family. And sometimes, as he put it, sometimes he was using it for the loss or the refugee status of them. Then I started working on the connection, the Mekaina and water. And that became another thing because it seemed very evident to me. And off the script, I wrote a piece which I called Skimming the Waves. And I wanted this energy and this joy, that connection I wanted with water. I was sent off to go and record specific scenes like the scene we call Parents from Hell, which is the knife fight between Jake and Quaridge, and that point where Jake and Natiri are talking about the fact that they're going to have to leave. And so we were just investigating things, you know, much like anything else in a film of this scale, sometimes it's a good thing to just try things out. Right. And this is all going through COVID, remember? At this point, we are what was meant to have happened. You see, the idea was that I would have started this score in late 2019. So suddenly all bets are off. And we continued doing stuff. And then it became 21. And then it became 22. <laughs> you know, And Avatar is a film for cinema. It's a film for the large screen. Without doubt. And... Therefore, or if you remember, this is a point where things were being thrown into streaming just because that's how they could get them out. Yeah. So we were making a film for a medium that might be under threat permanently. They were continuing to work in New Zealand. I was remoting and eventually, when we thought we had a release point, that the agreement I had with Jim was that I would come and work with him in New Zealand. And so I and my lead arranger, Stephen Baker, we moved down to New Zealand. They bought us loads of, you know, a studio's worth of equipment. I had a room, I had a piano, I had my studio with equipment. Everything was going well. And then New Zealand went into a lockdown. Right. And the big problem with this was that we were worried that the entire production might close down because we were all interacting. Part of this avatar things, the idea that we all know each other, we all work so that I can talk to the costume designer, I can talk to the prop master, I can talk to anyone and so on. Interactions on a level that aren't around on most other movies. Yeah. And so we went into these work bubbles. I stayed in that bubble for close to six months uh, to the point where Jim was the other side of a door. He was in the editorial bubble. But the editorial bubble and the music bubble did not interact physically. We had our own portable toilets outside. Oh, oh man. And these are surreal experiences where I can, with, I'm doing a review with Jim on Zoo. I could hear him through the door, next door, in one case, 
And then there was a half a second delay to hearing him through the Zoom. <laughs> so <laughs> there, there, there were some challenges to, to, to creating this score. I suppose it's comic now, but it probably wasn't at the time. <laughs> it, it was, you know, Jim and I saw each other for the first time physically in close to six months. He and I were on the same plane together, flying to LA for the first scoring sessions, which we did in July, because we were scoring in Los Angeles with the great band here at the Newman stage on the Fox Lots. So is this July of 2022? It's July of 2022. Okay, got it, okay. The person who knows how music should be in a James Cameron film better than anybody else is Jim Cameron. There was one particular one, the Navi attack, where I wrote one that was more in the lines of where we were for Avatar 1. And maybe a couple of weeks later, he said, I like what you did here in one of the earlier cues. There was a, and he said, I like this muscularity and I like the way that this sits under my, my action and my dialogue and my effects. He'd done a cut, he'd done a cut and paste from some of the other cues and made something for me and said, this, this is where I'd like to head. Rather than be able to explain to me verbally what he wanted, he would show me by editing my music in the Avid. He always gave me a, a, a new where he wanted me to go. And that ultimately is the most important thing is do you understand where your director wants the music to be? Because I only write the music, the music is actually Jim's. You know, one of the things that, that I love about your score is that it is, it's not just an orchestral score and it's not just a choral score. There are colors and uh, solo vocalists and interesting world instrumentalists involved here. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you needed to do that was beyond the traditional film score. An Avatar score is for Avatar and Pandora. We couldn't put the score for Avatar 1 or Avatar 2 onto Lord of the Rings, no more than you could put Lord of the Rings on Avatar or onto Star Wars. They are very much of their worlds. And there's an organic quality to what I think that we wanted to have. If I look at both scores, the way that I do the programming, the, the terms of the arrangements of the electronica, it tends to be not more like super processed synth stuff, although I did do some of that for certain cues. And so I looked at the world, and obviously we're going to new territories. We're, and this made me think that I have to evolve some of the sound. I had a great guy called Chuck Jonke build me instruments. He's a world traveler of music. He goes around everywhere finding things and then building his own musical instruments. I think he's a, he's a hidden treasure in Los Angeles. And so he and I worked on some textures. I had Chuck working on building me instruments that I could you know, use in, in the score. And I looked at, for instance, the Mekaina tribe, who are the tribe on the sea. And I made a choice, which is that where I had had gamelan and glowing forest there. In, in the first film. This needed to evolve. So I moved to a bamboo and wooden percussion side of things, like anklungs, things like that. It felt a more appropriate sound. And you can hear that when we first go into the village, there's a cube sanctuary, I think is what we call it on the album. And there's this point when we move into the light. We've come out of the darkness, we've gone through the storm, and we come out to the light. When you first start to hear the, the Mekaina theme, I only play it chordally, I don't actually play the theme. I play voices and I play this wooden percussion. 
along with the orchestra. I looked at some of the sort of nomadic tribes around the world. I'd worked with Mongolians before in years gone by, and I looked at some of the Polynesian. This, there's this sound of a sixth that is very much a thing in Polynesian vocal. In this case, I was also looking at some of the water music of Vanuatu, Cook Island, and I tried to find a hybrid of those things. I found some wonderful singers, and they had a softer, longer tone. So rather than this edgy, pointed sound that we use for the forest, the slightly softer, longer tone became something that I wanted to associate with the sea. And then I also had to make some other decisions about how we were going to treat some of the other areas. For instance, we meet Hayakan, the great Tulkun. He's this beautiful whale-like creature, 300 tons. We had been introduced to one of the lead whale researchers at UCLA to talk to us about whale song and about how it was used. Jim wanted us to work on the way, the Tulkun in general, how they talk. There had to be a distinct language, but also there was singing written into the script. There were some of the words in the script where it says, you know, she was a composer of songs, they're talking about something. And there were songs that the Tulkun sang. So the Tulkun has two swim bladders. And therefore I thought, okay, well now we start looking about harmonic resonances. How does a whale create a sound? And it turns out that it's made inside. You think it's going through the, uh, the blowhole. No, this is effectively a wind instrument. Then you start thinking about, you know, that harmonic series. And circle of fifths came in, you know, the idea that you cut a tube into different lengths and you get different notes. And I started playing things on the piano thinking, okay, well, let's start with C, G, D, A. And then I thought, oh, no, that's a bit boring. <laughs> so then I started going, bum, 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 which is G, C, D. And it became this leap. It felt right because there was some scale to it, but also visually. You see this huge creature, but he has this dancer-like quality. And I wanted the music to have a similar vibe, to feel as if it just flowed. I couldn't do something that was really nimble. It wouldn't have worked for Pyacan. Pyacan needed a big, long tone. The complexity of the score continues to astonish me. And, and I think this is as heavily choral a score as I've heard in years. The film is over three hours long and there must be nearly three hours of music in the film and a great deal of it involves voices and i'm wondering if you can talk about why that was important jim loves voices i am a reflection of my director now we obviously had a choral tradition in avatar one and we had used big choir as well in avatar one but there were certain things here especially with underwater where we didn't have dialogue you know from childhood we have a special thing to listen to a voice and putting like choral work behind dialogue can often be a real problem because you sit there and your, your ear wants to go to the choir even though you're meant to be listening to the words that the actor is saying. So in this case, there's underwater and there is no dialogue. And the voices in particular, he felt gave him a tactile quality that he liked. And I would use voices in a number of different ways. Obviously, there's the big choral stuff for some of the big action cues. And now I also had this texture that was the Polynesian vocal quality. Then there were some other things. There were the first swim, where we first discover what's underneath the surface of the water. 
And it is a magical moment when the kids dive in and suddenly look around and it is like this whole new world has appeared. And it occurred to me this was like the sirens singing to them. And so I actually did a thing where I had uh, Grace Davidson, who is a great soprano, multi-track, a two-part harmony line. And part of the reason to multi-track her was that it gives it a closeness and there is a tactile quality to it. It's almost mermaid's calling, but it's siren's call. But in this particular cue, Jim said to me, I want you know the iridescence of light through the water, the way that it dapples on the sand on the bottom of the sea. And we were talking about the way that we would represent water musically. And I was looking at the bubbles and the iridescences, and so I, we got the percussion, live percussionists. We made a sort of like an immersive square. We got mark trees, a number of them. We got keys, we got some other little metallic things. And I had them play randomly just individual tines or individual keys or individual things so that there was this sense of just little notes just glistening around and then we layered a number of these. So it wasn't just a big wash of white noise, it was just more the sense of iridescence. That plus the voices was this into the water cue. And it, you know, very simple piano in the background. And I wanted that sense of them having this beautiful flow and there's these incredible fish swimming past. There's, it, it is a, quite an astonishing thing to see in 3D as well. And so you, you have to sort of find that layers and then go to the big orchestra when they finally get to see the sort of edge of the reef. I'm very proud of that cue. So speaking of big orchestra, how big was the orchestra here in Los Angeles? The biggest ended up being 105. Wow. But we couldn't do everyone together, which is obviously how we would all prefer it to be done. We were, had to twist 90 degrees for the COVID protocols. Wow, that's a big sound. But I was fighting with rocket ships sometimes. Yes, of you course. Know? Yes, that's true. So there are two songs in the film. We've already talked about the song chord, which Zoe yeah. Saldana sings, but there's also a song by The Weeknd at the end of the movie. Is that connected to the to the score? And did you work with The Weeknd? Yes, it's, but yes to both. Abel has been great. Sometime around early summer, Jim and I had a conversation. He said, are you interested in putting in the song at the end of the film? And I said, I'm not sure. And he said, well, if you were going to do a song at the end of the film, who would you use? And I wrote down one name. I wrote down The Weeknd. And later that summer, we got in touch with Abel and played him a bit of the film. And he was blown away. In September, you know, I, I sent him some ideas. I sent him some cues, major theme stuff, and concepts like lyrical ideas, not for him to, you know, he was going to write the lyrics and, and his, his vocal melody but just so that he had material to see where we were coming from. Because Jim and I both wanted this to feel as if it organically had a reason to exist. It didn't, under no circumstance, it could just be a pop song stomped on the end of a movie. So Abel and Swedish House Mafia, who's working with, send me a track and I listen to it and I go, yeah, oh, this is great, but what about using these Navi voices here? And uh, so I put the hook, and it's one of these, the, the, which is the opening 
of a song called, you know, I put that in there, and then I put that big drum sound that we use often. And then, obviously, there's an orchestra. We were talking about the idea that this is somebody fighting for their family. In some ways, you could say that Abel's song is Jake, and the, and Zoe's song is Neytiri. And I think Abel, we tweaked a few lyrics. Jim listened and said, hey, about how about these, you know, tweaking these words a little bit. So it was a very true collaboration. I think people will be able to hear. I think it's, a, it's great. And the response has been staggering. So you've finished, at long last, The yes. Way of Water. Yes. Will you be doing the next one? I'm signed to do all four. Have you started yet on yes, Avatar 3? Yes, I've three. I've already done music for three. We shot in 2018 for three. So there was a six-year lead on some of the stuff. And we discover new worlds. We know, I mean, new characters. There are new things. I, three is, you think two is big? <laughs> three is off the charts in comparison to that. I mean, it really is. There is the most astonishing, amazing things. It's um, hard to imagine. Yes, I know. <laughs> is Avatar your main job now for the next three or four years? I don't know. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to do some other things. I need to recharge my creative batteries. I actually need to sort of go and sit and do some gardening or something for a while. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like I've been on tour for a while. For sure. And I've been playing the same stuff. And I need to find some new music. I have the curiosity gene. I need to go and find some some strange music somewhere and I'll come back. Avatar is something I can walk into at any time and I'm back in the world because I've done now 14 hours worth of Avatar music. There's lots and lots of music. This is very much a home for me. But I, I like the challenges of doing different things. Of course. Well, Avatar The Way of Water is an extraordinary accomplishment and we can't thank you enough, Simon, for being with us today and talking about it. Well, it's been my pleasure, John, and thank you for having me. Check out Avatar The Way of Water in theaters and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed. Mm-hmm.